Good morning. Listen, when my family and I moved here a year and a half ago, we were willing to be cultural and contextual and adopt the local teams. I mean, it's what you do. We moved to Indiana. So we, like, I know the, I bought myself a Reggie Miller throwback jersey. I know the Pacers players. That's right. They're, as I tell you, slim pickings if you want to find an Indiana Pacers throwback jersey. It's, it's, you know, it's Reggie Miller, and then it's a, kind of a steep cliff. But I, uh, I know the players. I watch the games. But if you think that I endured several years of terrible Sixers teams only to give up now that they're finally awesome, you're crazy. <laughs> so I am continuing to trust the process, and I'm a 76ers fan. I can't give up on that. I can't give up on that. But listen, I've adopted the Pacers too. It's just hard when my, my hometown football team also just won the Super Bowl. So it's like, sorry. But hey, listen, if the, if the Colts win, I'd be happy to cheer for them as well. I'm an equal opportunity fan. You ever had something that you've really waited a long time for? Like it's taken a long time for this thing to happen and you are incredibly excited about it. You can't wait for this thing to happen. Like say, I don't know, you're the fan of a certain basketball team and they're terrible and they're so bad that the league steps in and like makes you replace your general manager and you go to a game one night and there's so few fans there that they give everybody there a free ticket to a future game. That's how bad your team is. The city of Boston is not a very large geographical city. It's not even really huge numbers-wise either. Uh, but because it's in this weird kind of geographical area and it sits on a, this spit of land, uh, they have major traffic issues. And particularly in the late 70s, they were really dealing with some serious traffic issues, trying to plan for the future of their city. So in 1982, they began planning on something called the Big Dig, which would build this large tunnel underneath the city to kind of bleed off some... Uh, of the traffic that was causing these major issues. And what they were told was it should be done in, when they finally broke ground in 1991, that it would be done by 1997. They'd set aside billions of dollars to do this, uh, and they were, a plan was underway. And the problem is that literally everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. Like the tunnels leaked, and they had funding issues, and stuff didn't work, and someone was even killed during the construction of it. And so even though the plan was for this to be built by 1997, it started in 1991, but was not completed until December 31st, 2007. When you miss your deadline by 10 years, you're not remotely close. It cost way more money and it took way more time. But when it finally was finished, it was a good thing. The result was a 62% reduction in the vehicle hours of travel on these couple of these specific highways. 62% reduction. Really significant. It took a long time to complete, but the wait was worth it. We're going to talk about that idea this morning as we continue our series, Radical, looking at, like Jerry said, the greatest sermon ever given by Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. And Jerry talked in the last two weeks about the Beatitudes, these series of blessings, these radical statements that flip cultural expectations on their head, that the first will be last, the last shall be first, blessed are the poor, like these crazy statements. And we're going to see why those crazy statements can be possible this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start at verse 17. But the first thing that we're going to take away from this, I'm going to tell you up front, and then we're going to see how it's true, is that God has a plan. It's the first thing we're going to look at. God has a plan. Matthew 5, verse 17, 
says this. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus saying here? Don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. What does that mean? Well, what that phrase means, the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets, that refers to the, to the Hebrew scriptures. It refers really to the Old Testament. And people have different views on kind of, it's like con, kind of confusing sometimes. Like, well, what do we do with that, right? Some people think, well, and this was certainly a, a thought at the time. Well, okay, so this was the, we have to keep the Hebrew scripture perfectly in order to know God. That's what he gave us. So that's where there was some tension when Jesus came. It's like, whoa, you're, you're, some of this isn't exactly what we heard back here. Uh, we got to keep this. But then there's other people that will say, well, that would, what that means when Jesus came is we can get rid of the whole first thing. We don't need the Old Testament anymore. Jesus comes to bring something new. We can just throw the Old Testament out because now we have something new. But, but we can't do that because first, Jesus says you can't do that. He literally says, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. He's using this phrase to communicate the smallest Hebrew letter and the smallest mark of the smallest Hebrew letter won't be removed until its purpose has been accomplished. He's going, we can't just throw stuff out. We can't just say, well, the Old Testament doesn't matter. And so then it leads to the question, well, does that mean we have to follow all these Old Testament dietary laws? Like, does that mean we, we need to still perform animal sacrifices? Is your dog going to start looking at you funny going, what are you doing with that knife? No. And the reason for that is this idea that Jesus lays out here is, this, is deeply significant. What he's saying is this. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment. He's connecting the dots for people. Connecting the dots to, from God's plan that was put in place before the beginning of the world. Connecting the dots to the fulfillment of that plan. You know those connect the dots drawings you did as a kid? You know, to have a series of dots and they'd have numbers on them. You'd have to follow it and draw it and, and make a picture. You know what I'm talking about? Here, we'll give you an example. We'll jog your memory. Like this. And you draw, you know, you take time and you're like, oh, connect them all. And then it looks like this when you're done. Because <laughs> you're good. I mean, you, you're really a stickler for all Let's be honest. It never looked like that ever. Because you get to about number 50, you're like, forget it, man. I don't even care. It's not even worth it. You're just like drawing straight lines. Like, I don't even care. And when I remember when I like, would do this stuff, it's like, there's so much erasing because you miss, you're not paying attention. Yeah, it never turned out like this. But these kind of drawings, right? You don't know what the picture is. You don't know what the picture is. That's why you have to follow the lines. Following the lines, connecting the dots, then gives you the picture. We can't tell what it is on the front end. Connecting the dots gives us this picture. It's like the reveal at the end. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's revealing the purpose of God's plan. We see at other parts in the Bible that God had put a plan into motion before the foundation of the world that God loves people. But God knew that because he gave people choice, people choose poorly. That we choose ourselves, we choose selfishly, that we are drawn to follow our hearts to say what we think we know is best for us. 
We're drawn to do what we think we want. We're, we're drawn to pursue our own needs. We're drawn to look at ourselves first. And God knew that this would lead us away from him. And in God's great love and mercy and compassion on us, he began to put this plan in motion. And the Old Testament talked about it. Talked about the, the rescuer that was to come, the Messiah that was to come, the one who would come to deliver his people. And some of those prophecies, we, we would see fulfillment in people like Moses and people like Joshua, but all of those ultimately pointed to the greater rescuer, the greater Messiah, who's Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. What he tells us here is that he is on a mission from God. The Old Testament points to how God's perfect plan was met fully in Jesus. He fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies by his life and the way he lived, and he fulfilled the Old Testament law through what he taught. This is significant because it shows us that the period in which people related to God through the law has ended, and now instead we begin the period where people relate to God through his son, where there is no more barrier where God has removed all that and said, I am yours and you are mine and I want you to know me personally, relationally. All these Old Testament sacrifices were a picture of forgiveness, a picture of redemption and Jesus came to be the perfect sacrifice. All these dietary laws were a picture of purity, a picture of how to be clean and Jesus comes to say, I wash you clean. He's the fulfillment of all of that stuff. Jesus isn't saying that the law doesn't matter. Jesus is saying the law matters even more than we think. And so he came as part of God's plan to keep the law perfectly and fulfill the Old Testament in ways we never could on our own. If law is all that we have, we will always fall short of that. Jesus came to say, I keep it for you. I keep it on your behalf. The statements Jesus makes here are a radical demand for holiness for surrendering our whole selves before God. Folks, the reason the law has never felt like home is because God sent Jesus to keep the law for us. All the law does is point out where we fail. Jesus came to say, failure no more. He stepped into our place, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, paid the penalty we should have paid, and God raised him back to life so we can have that life through him. He fulfilled God's plan to bring us back to himself. And so these statements are deeply meaningful. He's saying, I am the focal point of scripture. It all points to me. All this stuff has been leading to this moment his death and his resurrection on the cross, that is God's plan to rescue broken, sinful, rebellious people and bring us to himself. God has a plan. And the second thing, though, that's important that we want to take from this is God's plan has a purpose, has a very specific purpose. The purpose of that plan is to draw people to himself and so Jesus gives us two examples of what that plan looks like. What's our part in that plan? What is the purpose of that plan as it relates to us? And so he gives these two pictures, right? And it starts off in verse 13. It actually is a couple verses before what we just read. He says this, you are the salt of the earth. This is Jesus talking. But what good is salt if it's, if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. 
You are the salt of the earth. Not of a narrow area, not of a specific group, but of the earth. Salt has been an incredibly important part of the human diet since forever. Since people ate stuff and wanted stuff to taste better. Nearly every recipe calls for salt. Nearly every table has salt on it. Salt enhances and intensifies food's other flavors. Even sweet stuff. And that, when I was first cooking, like that blew my mind. It's like my, you know, my mom's making cookies and puts, all right, we need a whatever tablespoon of salt. Those are going to be bad cookies. But you know what I mean? Maybe it's a big batch. Who knows? You got to put salt in. You're like, whoa, you don't want to put salt in that, mom. These are sweet things. What are you doing? But salt intensifies that flavor. Salt makes other things better. And it's like, oh, well, you're right. Good call. Okay, apparently I don't know what I'm talking about. Salt is vitally important. But the other thing that I, that I find fascinating is that you can tell the absence of salt, right? You can tell when something doesn't have enough salt. My grandfather lives in a retirement community in uh, Chicago, and we'll go down to visit him. And we were there one time. We went to have dinner in the cafeteria. And they make everything according to a low-sodium diet because you can't like, take salt out of something when you've cooked it, and they're trying to care for different um, residents' needs. And so when you look around a meal in this, in this restaurant, you, you see the family members of the, the residents doing this. Yeah, how was your day? No, I was really good. You know, we got another call where it's like just dumping salt on because it is like there is no salt in that. You need some salt, man. Need some salt. You have french fries without salt? It's like, why are you punishing me? What did I do? Why do you hate me? You need salt in it. But the other major usage of salt, particularly back in, in ancient times like this, it was used as a preservative. It was used to keep meat from spoiling and to prevent decay. I think the point that Jesus is making here is this, that our world left to itself decays. It deteriorates when we think we can find meaning on our own, when we fixate on our own existence above anything else, when we focus on ourselves and not God, we fall apart, sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly, but it will inevitably happen. Nothing that we build will last forever. The role of followers of Jesus as salt is to live out the hope of Jesus and by doing so, slow the otherwise inevitable moral decline. Now, that doesn't mean that we wage a moral war on others. That doesn't mean that win at all costs is what matters. It doesn't mean we can, we can yell at people and harangue people and, and be aggressive and, and use the Bible as a sword to fight others to support this, this moral agenda. What it means is we actively live like Jesus. We embody the kingdom of God and we invite others in so that they're drawn in and their lives are changed. That's what it means. Living as salt means we live as a counterpoint to culture at large, as a sign that there is something more, that it is possible to find the meaning and the love and the purpose that we desperately want to know. It's possible. One pastor says it like this, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, even though it may hate it at first. Being salt is living for Jesus in a world that believes the lie that living for self is the highest goal. 
being salt is living for Jesus and painting this picture that that which we long for is not found out here, it's found in knowing God. And Jesus challenges his followers to not lose their saltiness. He said, what good is salt that's lost its flavor? Now, it's interesting that salt can't really lose its saltiness. Apparently, it's a pretty stable chemical compound. But the salt that they used back in antiquity, the salt that they used back in the day here, was different than what we use now, is refined differently. Obviously, we have different technology, different processes. Most salt that was used during this time came from places like salt marshes. So it contained impurities. The salt itself dissolved much easier than the impurities did, which could make it seem like salt lost its saltiness. Jesus says, losing unsalty salt is just, it's worthless. There's no point in that. And I think he's challenging us. The more impurities we let in, the more other stuff that we let in, it it drowns out the saltiness we're supposed to communicate. We're supposed to live. We're supposed to model. Man, that challenges me. Jesus is is calling me to live differently than than is easy to live. Jesus isn't saying it's okay to settle, it's okay to be fine, as long as there's some lip service, as long as you go through the motions and do some things, we're good. Jesus is saying you're either salty or you're not. And if I'm honest, I I don't always want to be challenged like that. Like I want to grow and I want to develop and I love feedback because I, I want to keep improving But if I'm honest, in my core, there's this thought that I really want people to validate what I'm already doing. And I imagine most of us feel like that too, if we're really honest. And so this is a challenge to say, I can't just maintain the status quo. It's a challenge to ask myself, am I living as salt or have I lost my saltiness? Because salt makes a big impact, even just a little bit of it. The next picture Jesus uses here is light. He says, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. And he goes on to say, In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. Uses this picture of light. Light illuminates. Light reveals. Light is used in the Bible to symbolize things like purity instead of filth, truth instead of ignorance, the presence of God instead of abandonment. And here he says, you are the light of the world. And I find that fascinating because we know later on in the Bible in John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I think what Jesus is telling us here is that because I am the light of the world, you are also the light of the world. You are to reflect my light to others. It's possible when we follow Jesus, who is the one true light. And then he continues on to say, like a city on a hill, a city on a hilltop. Now, back in this time, cities were often built on hilltops. They were easier to to defend. And white limestone was a very common building material. There's a lot of stuff in Israel built with white limestone. And so you can imagine 
a city on a hilltop built in white limestone. Man, in the light of the day, that thing pops. It, it sticks out. It, it gleams in the sun. You notice it. And then at night, when people have lit oil lamps and put them in the windows, that the glow from that light sp- spreads over the surrounding countryside. You cannot help but notice this city. This is how travelers would know where they're going. They could see far off. That's where we're headed. Can't hide that city. And he goes on to use a picture of a lamp. He says, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. That doesn't make any sense. If you don't want light, there are easier ways to not have light than lighting a lamp and then covering it. Like, for instance, just not lighting the lamp. Like, that would be easier if you didn't want light. Like, it doesn't make any sense. If you want light, you go to Ikea, you buy yourself a couple lamps, and you put some light bulbs in, and you have light. Like, that's the whole purpose of a lamp. That's why you do it. And you put it in a place that it's going to bring light to the room and light to other people. That's the whole reason you have them, right? And Jesus is saying that's what followers of Jesus are to be like. And he says, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see. And what's fascinating with that is good deeds, there's not a specific list of do these seven or eight things, like do these specific good deeds. Good deeds don't, it doesn't mean specific stuff. Rather, it means everything a follower of Jesus says and does. Every outward manifestation of Christian faith. Jesus is challenging us that the way we live and interact with others, what we do, that is how we show and reflect the character of God. Practical, visible deeds of compassion. Caring for your neighbors. Making somebody a meal. Asking someone who's having a bad day a question. Engaging with them. Giving of yourself. Being willing to sacrifice. Those are the deeds that reflect back. And I can tell you now, just from experience, when Christians live differently, people notice. People notice. When Christians live differently, people go, What's, what are you doing? Why would you do that? What, what motivates you? I, I'm curious. I'm not saying everybody comes and throws himself at your feet and like, oh, please, let me come to church with you. But sometimes that's what happens, right? But people are drawn into that. When Christians live differently, people want to know why. People want to know why. The light that's talked about here is supposed to eliminate a sin-darkened world to show humanity there is another, better way. That the questions that our soul wrestles with are, have an answer. And it's not where we look for them. Those answers are found in Jesus. Think about how significant light can be. Even, even a little light, right? You ever been like in a pitch black room or, or say you're like you're sound asleep and then maybe your spouse opens the bathroom door and cracks the light and you're like, oh, goodness gracious, it's like the sun on my face. What did I do to deserve this? It's so bright. That's the hope that Jesus wants. Causes followers to be that kind of light in a dark world that people will see our good deeds and they will reflect the goodness of God and glorify him. One writer says it this way, they will inevitably recognize that it is by the grace of God that we are what we are, that our light is his light, that his works are our works done in and through us that it'll draw people in. One of the fun things about being a parent is being able to look like a super genius to your kids when they ask you to explain stuff. So like, you know, so your kid comes to you and says like, well, 
Daddy, why does the moon light up at night? And you're like, well, son, glad you asked. You see, and that's where it's like, you just, you, you can, the scary thing is you can be wrong and they'll totally buy it. You're like, the sun changes its batteries and puts them into the moon. And like, oh, batteries. And then, you know, then they get a failing grade in science now. But it's fun to be able to explain that stuff to your kids. Something like this, like the moon has no light of its own. All the moon does is reflect the light of the sun. We're going to put up a, a chart here so you can see what it looks like. The sun is going to be on the left side of that picture. And the reason we see different phases of the moon, the reason we see different shapes is as the moon rotates, as the moon sort of orbits around the earth or whatever that word is, you'll, you know what I mean, we see different portions of what's, of what's been lit up and that's reflected back to us. One of the things I found fascinating when I dug into this more is that the moon reflects only between 3 and 12% of the sunlight that hits it. Think about that. Think about the night when you're outside and the, and the moon is incredibly bright. That's between 3 and 12% of, of, of what the sun is really putting out. That's because the sun is incredibly powerful. That's the source of the light. All the moon has to do is reflect even a portion of it to appear bright. That's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. We are called to be the moon. To reflect the light of the sun, but in this case, it's the son of God. We reflect his light to others. That Jesus is the true light and because of him, we can reflect that. That's a hard challenge, but it's a worthy one. One Dietrich Bonhoeffer would know all about. He was a pastor in Nazi Germany who spent time trying to undermine the Nazi regime that was doing all this terrible stuff. And he said at one point, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. If we are following Jesus, we cannot help but reflect his light. We cannot help it. Are we being that kind of community? Are you being that kind of follower? I get that that's hard. It's easy to wonder what difference we could possibly make. We live in a world that's darkened by sin. Evil is a present reality. Terrible things happen. Things like famine and earthquakes and genocide. People hate and steal and kill. It's too easy to be terrible to one another. Humanity's rebellion from God has darkened our world. And looking around at a world like this, it's easy to wonder what difference we could make. That our little light can't hold back the darkness. But one light is significant. One light is significant. And that's all Jesus is called to do is to reflect his light. One light is significant, but we're not alone. We don't do this on our own. We add to our one light another and another and another and another and another until there's more than just one and it begins to make a dent into the darkness. But we, we don't stop there. There is more than this. If you take out your phone and turn the flashlight on and aim it up here, if you have a flip phone, some sort of illumination from that is okay. There's no shame in having a flip phone. It's dark, no one will know. 
We're not alone. It's not just our one little light. Others have lights, and together those lights, when combined, begin to make a dent in the darkness. That the darkness cannot hold this back because the light that that is ours is really the light that comes from the Son of God, that he has ultimately conquered death, that he has ultimately defeated sin, that we can look forward with great hope to this victory. It is not ours, but Jesus invites us to be included in that. Our light can make a difference. A little salt makes a big difference, and a little light makes a big difference too. God wants us to be active participants in his plan. We are not simply the audience. We're invited to be actors. Think about what we just participated in. That is a picture of what this looks like that we think we are alone and we get overwhelmed and intimidated and we don't want to talk about this stuff at work or with friends or with co What will people think if they knew I was a Christian? What would people think, man? Culture's against us, all this stuff. We will believe this, these, this, these ideas. Some are true and some that aren't, but what we forget is that the God of the universe has already won. That we can have confidence in reaching out to others because God's already won. It's not up for debate. There's no fear. God doesn't promise that being salt and light is going to be easy. God doesn't promise that it won't be challenging, that, that bad things may not happen. But what he promises is that it is worth it and what, it's what we are called to do in order to be obedient. Think about it. A group of radicals are invited to help transform the world, not through violence, but through love and compassion and surrender. Jesus calls us to something radically different. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, my challenge for you is the same as my challenge for me, to be salt and light. To follow Jesus authentically, to live out the reality of Jesus in our lives, to surrender to him, to show the world we live in that there is a different, better way that there is hope, that there is peace, that those things that we long for have an answer and that answer is found in Jesus. We're called to be the moon, reflect God's light to others. You are the light of the world. So Jesus is saying, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. What can you do this week to live that out? What's one thing you can do this week? What's, what's one way you can be the moon this week? What would it look like for you to reach out to someone around you, to be purposeful about sharing about what you believe? Maybe it's as simple as, as starting a conversation about church. Where are you on, you know, what do you, what do you, guys, what do you normally do on a Sunday? Where do you go to church? Do you go to church anywhere? You're just looking to, for ways to engage in conversation, live life authentically with people. Honestly, for a lot of us, it's going to be as simple as not being afraid we don't have to be afraid. If you would describe yourself as a follower of Jesus, then live with boldness and confidence. Because God has already won and he invites us to be on his team. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you're curious or you're not convinced of this yet, first I want to say, I'm glad you're here. We're all on a journey and we want you to feel welcome here, no matter where you are in yours. I want you to hear me say this morning, what can we do to help this make more sense to you? What can we do? We all have questions. 
How can we help this come alive? How can we help this be more real to you? I hope you hear me say this morning that God's plan is for you to know him personally and intimately because he knows you and loves you deeply. Folks, this is how life matters in the deeper, more meaningful way we hope for. Jesus is telling us, when he says he's the fulfillment of all that's come before, he's saying, I am the fulfillment of God's plan. That desire we have to matter, that desire we have for purpose and for substance, Jesus is saying, I am where you find that. Are we willing to look to him? Because he's been pursuing us the whole time. God wants us to be active participants in his plan. We're not simply the audience. We are invited to be actors. I love how one pastor says it. We are told to let our light shine. And if it does, we don't need to tell anyone it does. Lighthouses don't fire cannons to call attention to their shining. They just shine. 